All right, we're going to study his word together. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Proverbs chapter 1. We're beginning a new series, walking through this book of Proverbs together. And I want to invite you also to grab your worship guide and open that up because we're actually going to start by thinking about the book of Proverbs as a whole, the kind of collection of Proverbs and thinking about it big picture, and then we'll dive into our text in particular. So there at the outset, because we've got a lot of work to do, so the question that you have there at the top of your notes is, what is Proverbs, or what is the book of Proverbs? First off, it's a collection of wise sayings. Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. Most of these were written by King Solomon himself, a man blessed with world-renowned wisdom. He wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, over 1,000 songs. He was immensely gifted by God. Individual people traveled from all over the world to ask him questions about life and concerns and puzzles and riddles and all kinds of things. But under divine inspiration, Solomon has given us these pithy, memorable statements filled up with how to live well in this world under God. And so we're going to see that as we walk through this book together. Um, Solomon, once you read through the book, you find out that these aren't, it's not just Solomon. I mean, largely it's Solomon, but he's bringing in other voices under divine inspiration, Agur and Lemuel and others, and he's bringing them so that we can hear this kind of collective of sages, of Old Testament uh, wise ones who are gathered around, if you will, a table, and we get to listen in, we get to be a fly on the wall and benefit from this conversation that's going on in this collection of sayings. A, a proverb is, is that. It's a, it's a memorable, kind of quick, um, clever one-liner about how to live well. Right, So we even have some of these, we have English proverbs, look before you leap, or don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? These things that kind of, it's been passed on because it makes sense and it's true. Generally speaking, it's true. And so biblical proverbs, it's kind of like that, very memorable, very short, um, very practical, but there's more than that. There's more than that in biblical proverbs because Biblical Proverbs are teaching us how to live well in a world designed by God, in a world hardwired by a designer, hardwired by God himself. And so, you know, you actually get to those little short sayings. The Proverbs themselves really begin in chapter 10. So what you have for nine chapters is an extended introduction a nine-chapter introduction, and in this nine-chapter introduction, they're trying to whet your appetite. They're trying to bring you in so that you want to pay attention to these sayings of the wise. You want to find these pearls and these jewels of wisdom. So they've got extended speeches, 10 speeches from a father to a son, four poems from someone you might call Lady Wisdom. It's personified. Wisdom is personified as a woman in these early chapters, walking through the streets, and she's calling out to the simple, and she's saying, who wants wisdom? Come with me. Come inside. Let's sit at the table, and you can benefit from wisdom. And so you've got four poems from Lady Wisdom, ten speeches from a father to a son in these nine chapters, all of which comes together as God's invitation to successful living in his world. And then once you get to chapter 10, out come these just piles, it's just reams and reams of disconnected truisms 
of how to live life practically in God's world. So, for example, Proverbs 11.25. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. In other words, that's, that's generally true. You live a life of generosity, it comes back, right? One of my favorites is Proverbs 27, 14. If one blesses his neighbor with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be counted as a curse to him. I love that proverb. Quoted it to my mom many times in high school when she woke me and my brother up when the alarm clock didn't go off or we didn't want it to go off. And I was like, Mom, you know, these curses are going to fall upon you. I don't want this. I know you don't want this. So can we just turn it down a little bit, right? She wasn't receiving it, but in any case, there, there it is. 1 Kings 4 tells us how many, how prolific Solomon's repository of wise sayings was, 3,000. He, he had reams. So he, he was the first Renaissance man, in a sense, certainly for Israel, where he had just books and books and collections of sayings and things that he studied and his observations of nature and consider the ant and look at the lion and uh, all of these things. He just watched his world with keen insight. In terms of the devices, the literature itself, I mean, this book pulls out all the stops. All the literary fireworks are going off in this book. There's simile, there's metaphor, there's alliteration, play on words, humor, irony, paradox, parental speeches, personification, observations of nature, moral admonition, rhetorical questions. I mean, it's just, it's chock full. Much like Jesus in the way that he used the parables to stimulate thought, to provoke thought, the Proverbs are designed to not leave you where you were. They're designed to, to move you in, to, to stir curiosity, to stimulate searching attitude. That's what the Proverbs want to do. One other thing by way of introduction is this. Proverbs, it's godliness dressed in working clothes. I love that about this book. It's godliness dressed in working clothes. Derek Kidner, in his classic commentary on the book of Proverbs, he writes this, it's a book that seldom takes you to church. The Proverbs is a great place for Christians to learn something that doesn't always come naturally to us as Christians, and it's this truth, that it's possible to be more spiritual than the Bible. The Bible is interested in your normal life your Monday morning, your office time, your clocking in and clocking out, right? It, this book deals with ordinary life. It, it lives in a world of paychecks and loan sharks and roaming eyes and alarm clocks. It is in the everyday warp and woof of how we live in this world. I love, I, there's a lot more we could say by way of introduction to this, but I love what our friend Ray Ortland Jr. writes to posture us to receive this book he says this, the book of Proverbs is a gospel book because it is part of the Bible. That means the book of Proverbs is good news for bad people. It is about grace for sinners. It is about hope for failures. It is about wisdom for idiots. <laughs> this book is Jesus himself coming to us as our counselor, as our sage, as our life coach. Love that. Hope that that whets our appetite to really study this over the next several weeks. So, let's read our text. Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Would you follow along as I read? 
the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. So if you could have any one thing, what would you want? Actor Will Smith announced over the weekend, last weekend, that Aladdin has officially become the highest grossing film of his career. And in the movie, I don't know if you saw the early version, maybe you saw the later version, maybe you didn't see either one, but there's a peasant boy named Aladdin who comes into possession of a magic lamp, and upon rubbing this lamp, a genie, in the new movie, played by Will Smith, pops out and offers him three wishes. Anything that you want, he does add some quid pro quo, some this, you know, you can't ask for this, you can't ask for that, and you can't ask for this. But he says, apart, apart from that, the sky's the limit, ask me for anything that you want. So just think about that, because I think that, uh, that begs for imagination. If you didn't have three wishes, but you only had one, what would you want? Here's the thing is, about a thousand years before Jesus arrives on the scene, that scenario plays out, not in a movie or in a play, but in real life. And it's not a genie in a bottle, it's God Almighty, and he comes to Solomon, and he says, what do you want? You ask me for something, I'll give it to you. What do you want? And Solomon says, give me a heart of understanding. He asked for wisdom, and God, it says, was so pleased that he didn't ask for power or wealth or vengeance on his enemies, he asked for wisdom, and God leans in in that moment, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, and he says, I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. That is until the New Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene and Jesus says, one greater than Solomon has come. It is him, the son of David, Jesus himself, who is the wisest person who ever lived. Now, here's the thing. If you keep reading the Bible, you find out that that promise, that provision of God for Solomon was wondrous, and it brought people from all over the world, but it didn't guarantee that Solomon was always going to live by the dictates of wisdom. Maybe it's intentional that the book of Ecclesiastes comes right after the book of Proverbs because Ecclesiastes tells us, if anything, wisdom can be ignored. Wisdom gotten can be wisdom dismissed. It's the life of an absolute fool who's going after everything and he, Solomon comes to the end of it and he says the conclusion when all has been heard after searching high and low for satisfaction is, I should have done what I knew in the first place. I should fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. But here in Proverbs, God wants to impress upon his people. He wants to impress upon you and me. This isn't just an ancient document for ancient times. He wants to impress upon you and me that his wisdom is that one thing you need more than anything else. It is, if you're going to get anything, get wisdom. Seek it like 
gold and precious jewels. Find it and your life will be different. So why do we have a book like Proverbs? And in this text, I think we see three things. We see two aims of wisdom and one immovable foundation of wisdom. This book, number one, wants to teach you to live skillfully. It's one of the aims, it's one of the objectives, the reasons that God put this book in the Bible is to teach us to live skillfully. And you see that first goal described right here in our text. Look at verse two. It even has the purpose word for. Why do we have Proverbs? For learning wisdom and discipline. Verse three, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity. There are... Suffering in our lives is not one-dimensional in the Bible. Suffering can come from a number of different places. There are at least three different explanations for suffering in any one person's life. Some of us suffer because we've sinned. We've broken God's law, and that brings natural consequences. That brings painful consequences into our lives. And for this, we thank God. We have a gospel. We have forgiveness in Jesus Christ for all of our sins, and we have a God who enters in redemptively into the mess we've made and starts to restore us. But some of the mess that we have, some of the suffering we experience is owing to our sin. Some of us, it's not so much owing to some act of unrighteousness or thing that we did. It's just we live in a broken world. It's a fallen world, and you're not going to avoid all the bumps and bruises that come from living in a broken world. So sometimes we just suffer because it's, it's not right here yet. It will be one day, but it's not right here yet, and we're all going to discover that in various ways. But there's a third. Sometimes our suffering in this world isn't because of either of those things, but it's because of ignorance. It's because we didn't know what we didn't know. It's because we jumped into something too fast. It's because we were gullible or naive. It wasn't necessarily sin. We just didn't know better. We didn't size up the situation. We weren't discerning of that person's motives, right? Proverbs, in a way, it doesn't sound like a hugely empathetic book. Um... Because I think the, the goal of Proverbs is to get in there and give us wisdom to prevent the damage before it happens. W Proverbs is largely aimed at damage prevention. You, you think about this, right? Life is too short and the stakes are too high for us to live by the seat of our pants. Life is too short, the stakes are too high for, for me to learn everything by experience. You know, school of hard knocks. There's a better way. Proverbs doesn't say, like our culture says, our culture says what? Live and learn. Proverbs says, no, learn and live. It reverses those two things. It says, hey, sit down, pull up a chair. I'm going to tell you how to live this life successfully under my rule and in, in this world and in this broken world. I'm going to tell you what to watch out for so you can peek around the corner and see what's coming for you. He's preparing. He's saying, learn and live. And Proverbs, in that sense, doesn't offer us a perfect life. It doesn't offer us a trial-free life. What Proverbs offers is a very specific gift. It offers to reduce a certain kind of suffering. And the certain kind of suffering Proverbs wants to reduce is the regret and personal anguish that results from years of living against the grain of God's wisdom. It wants to rescue us from that. That's why we're talking about living skillfully. You ever known somebody who's 
crazy smart, but they're ruining their lives. Wisdom is more than just accumulated data, winning jeopardy, right? It's not just trivial understanding. It's more than brains. It's more than your, the sum of your ACT score and your GPA. It, there's something else. There's a moral component to it. There's a learning the skill, the expertise of living in this world practically informed by the wisdom that God has given us in his word. My, my nephew just uh, got his first coaching position at a prestigious, a top-performing high school in football in the country and uh, he had some great opportunities and experiences as a student in Mississippi State working with Coach Mullen, and then he worked at Arizona State for a little while. And he's just got coaching pedigree. His grandpa was a coach and had coaching positions at the Jets and the Falcons and the Saints and the Packers. His dad played at LSU, so my brother-in-law played at LSU. And then um, my, my brother-in-law, before he played at LSU, of course, he's just watching his dad coach all these different teams, offensive coordinator positions. My brother-in-law, Joe, Connor's dad, learned how to properly throw a football from number 12 himself on the Jets. Joe Namath taught my brother-in-law how to properly throw a football, right? So my nephew, it came by him honestly, right? It was, he was marinated in the game of football. He was always looking, always analyzing, always reading plays, reading defenses. He grew up a student of the game, not just enjoying throwing and catching, but a student of the game of football. You think about that analogy over here as it relates to the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, wisdom doesn't walk onto the football field and hope that we win. Wisdom has a plan. Wisdom has a strategy. It takes into account the rules of the game. It takes into account the psychology of the game. It makes calculated risks based on the psychology of the game. That's informed strategy, timing, all of this. A few points to consider, so this is in your notes. Wisdom is concerned with the type of person you're becoming. Not just a list of all the things that you did yesterday or might do today, but the type of person you're becoming is the aim of this book. Verse 3, you see it right there. For receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, there is an inescapable moral element to God's wisdom, an ethical element. You you ever... um, refuse to hang out with somebody, not because you don't enjoy them, but because you don't necessarily get along with their friends. You don't connect with their friends. Well, wisdom has friends. Wisdom runs with a squad, and the squad that wisdom runs with is right there in verse 3. Righteousness, justice, and integrity. Wherever you see wisdom, there are three others running alongside wisdom, righteousness, justice, and integrity. In the Bible, you can't become wise if you're not interested in becoming good, like thoroughly good, a person of integrity. You can't do an end run around integrity and get to wisdom because wisdom isn't just data. It's not just knowledge bits that we download into our brains. It's a whole life transformation. That, that next word is key in verse 2. For learning wisdom and, you see it there, discipline. Here's the hard reality is we don't come into this world, we're not born wise, we're born fools. 
And foolishness, the ancient sages would say, has to be driven out because foolishness is already there. It's latent. It's in us. And foolishness has to be driven out. So that means right here at the outset of Proverbs, we learn we're going to have to learn this the hard way. We're going to have to learn wisdom through, through instruction, through correction, through discipline. It's going to be painful at times. It's going to cross our designs. It's not going to feel like it's going the way that we want it to go. The hardest thing to say is I was wrong, right? The hardest thing to say is I was wrong, but Proverbs says you're going to have to exercise that muscle. You're going to have to exercise your confession, humility, muscle. Let me turn that question out for us to consider personally, for you to consider personally. How do you do admitting you're wrong? Admitting you're wrong to God, confessing your sins specifically to God. How do you do, sometimes this is more difficult, how do you do admitting you're wrong to people, to the other people who are hurt by us, admitting that was wrong, what I said was wrong, the spirit in which I said it was wrong. I need your forgiveness. I want to change. Do we say that as Christians? His word, God's word wants to teach us to say those Things Proverbs, receiving correction is essential. There's no end run around it. Essential for successful living in God's world is receiving correction. You know, it's possible for us to look like we've learned something but not actually learn something. It just sort of sits externally to us. We've gone through the motions, but there's no real heart learning of the thing that we're reading about in God's word, or the truth, or the principle, right? So I, I had a great fear as a child. Um, I feared that I would be, I'm the last of three kids, I feared I would be the first Mason kid who would not succeed in learning to read. And I was really up, I don't know where I got this from, but I was really uptight about reading. When I walked into Miss Novak's class and she's like, this year you're going to learn to read, I'm like, no I'm not. It's, I'm not going to learn to read. And so years before I was in Miss Novak's class, Literally, I'm in the back of the car. I'm not even in school yet. My siblings were dropping them off at Heinz Elementary School in New Orleans. And I'm trying to spell words. And I'm like, B-R-H-Z. And they're like, no. (laughs) And I try another one, and another combination, and another one. And I'm not spelling any words, and I'm getting more and more uptight. And then finally... On a fateful day, in the back of the car, I accidentally spelled my first word. I said W-A-T-C-H, and the car just exploded with excitement. My sister's like, he's a genius. (laughs) And I'm like, maybe I am. (laughs) I spelled watch, it's a five-letter word. And then the next hundred tries, I didn't spell another word, right? So I realized, I, didn't, I don't know how to spell. I got lucky. I happened to combine five letters that make some sense. I hadn't learned to spell. I had mouthed the right letters in the right order. Proverbs wants to teach us not to mouth the right words in the right order. It wants to teach us to say things from the heart. 
It wants to teach me, you and me, to say, I was wrong. I'm not saying this to get one over on you. I was wrong. I need to learn from you. Teach me this. God, God wants to create a heart that humbly receives instruction, humbly receives turning and course correction and adjustment. I love this next truth. Wisdom is an open invitation to all. It's indiscriminate, and it's invitation, verse 4, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. So it starts by saying this is for the young, right? Proverbs has a primary audience, and it's targeted at the young. It's targeted at the inexperienced. Again, that makes sense because it's trying to do damage prevention, it's trying to get in there before you've made all the biggest decisions of your life so that that's shaped by God's wisdom. That's why the language so often in those early chapters is from a father or a mother to a child. It's from an older generation to the younger generation saying, do this, don't do this, this is not wise. We've tried that before. Drink from your own cistern, right? All these wise words. Why is it here? We have, we have more children in the room this month, and that's, that's a joy. We have more students in the room this month. So think about this. Students, think about how good God is to you, specifically in the book of Proverbs. He, God, wants to set you up now to have a great life, a great life. And by great life doesn't mean trouble-free life. It doesn't mean everything is awesome life. But, but life with God, <laughs> life under his blessing, life under his, his commands, which are for our good, life under his rule, life without regret. If you've lived long enough, that sounds to you, older friends in the room, that, doesn't that sound beautiful, life without regret? Wouldn't we urge the young people in the room, oh, get that, get, get life without regret? Young people in the room, children in the room, if I can speak for Christian parents and grandparents, we're, we're going to come, the older generation in this room, we're going to come to the end of our lives, and there's going to be regret. There's going to be things we wish we hadn't said, things that we wish we hadn't done, but we're not going to regret any decision we made to listen to God. Every moment we decided to trust and obey him and his word, that won't be one that we regret. We urge that upon you. And so in the spirit of this great book from an older generation of believers to a younger generation, we would say with one voice, children, students, Live your life with full abandon to the purpose of God. Go deep with God. Get insight beyond your peers. Become profound. Search for wisdom. Search for knowledge. Lead people good places. Be a great friend. Be a great listener. Advocate for the oppressed and the marginalized and the vulnerable. Don't run with fools. That's what Proverbs wants to say. Proverbs wants to say to you, all you young in this room, Proverbs wants to say, hey, if you're going to get one thing, one thing, get 
wisdom and hold on to it with all your might. Wrap it like a pendant around your neck. Bind it on your heart. Don't let it go. Notice it's not just to the young. There's an indiscriminate invitation from Lady Wisdom. Verse 5. Let a wise person listen and increase learning. Have you given up the search, older generation, for more, for more wisdom, for more knowledge about how to live skillfully in this world that God has made? An old pastor, I heard him speak to his congregation, and he looked out at the older generation of believers from verse 5, and he said this, these words, don't die before you die. Don't die before you die. The real proof that we have wisdom is we want to be wiser, right? And if we don't want to be wiser, we maybe didn't have wisdom in the first place. Wisdom is a constant quest. It is hungry for more and more and more. Older believers, let me admonish you. Let's demonstrate to the generation that's coming behind us that there's more. There's more to know about God. There's this wisdom that unlocks new treasures for those who keep seeking. So let the search continue, even for the old in the room. Let the search continue all of our days. I woke up um, a few weeks back on a Monday morning, and I was going to start getting prepared for the sermon that coming Sunday, which was on the love of God the Father. I woke up that morning thinking about a song that had the phrase, something about God's love, and had that phrase, and, and I thought, I haven't heard that song in 30 years. I was a child when I heard that song last. And I went over to the piano, and I tried to remember it, and I tried to play, and I was kind of bumping along and playing some of the chords, and there was one chord that was eluding me, and I I'd never played that song before. As a child, I heard my mom play it. And I couldn't find that chord, and I couldn't remember what was the harmony part. There was something really beautiful happening right on this word, and I can't find it. So what do I do? It's first thing in the morning, and I FaceTime mom. And she doesn't even want to show me her face. Like, she's like, babe, my hair's not done. And, you know, then she finally comes into view, and her hair really is all over. You know, it's... And, like, five minutes later, uh, her phone is on her piano. My phone is on my piano. And we're playing. And she plays the chord. And she's like, son, I haven't played this in 30 years. And she's like, I can't remember it. Is it this? I'm like, no, no. Is it this, mom? She's like, no, it's not that. We're leaning into the phones and listening back and forth, right? Together, we finally found the chord that she hadn't played in 30 years and the chord that I've never played in 30 years as a piano student. Wisdom is that way. New insights keep opening up, unlocking, right? A whole new, well, that's, that's kind of an Aladdin reference unintentionally. A whole new world opens up <laughs> before us in the search for wisdom. wisdom. Wisdom rewards the tenacious, not the, not the passerby not the curiously inquisitive. It, it rewards the people who go and get a spade and start digging. It uses that metaphor over and over. Dig for it and you'll find things down here underneath the surface. God has given us these words to equip us, number one, to live skillfully, number two, to think perceptively. 
to think perceptively. The language of purpose in verse two that these Proverbs are given, you see that next phrase, for understanding insightful sayings. God has given you a brain for a reason. He's given you intellect for a reason. He actually wants us to use that. It's there on purpose, right? We've not arrived as Christians if we live by a passion that's devoid of understanding. He's a fan of understanding. You see it right here at the outset of Proverbs. He wants to give us understanding. In in the original Hebrew, that word shrewdness that you see there in our passage, it's the same root word that's used to describe the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It's the same word that's used to describe when Saul says, hey, we're hunting for David and we've lost him and he's really good at hiding. So check everywhere twice because he has extreme Cunning, it's the same exact word that's used here. Here, it's a a good kind of cunning. Here's the point. God wants to keep us from being fooled. God wants to keep us from being fooled. God wants us as his people to see things that are not obvious. That's what discernment is to see below the surface. Jesus looked out at the Pharisees and he said, now I see your lips moving, but your hearts are far away. You've cleaned the outside of the cup, everybody can see that, but you've not cleaned the inside. He saw what wasn't obvious to the rest of us. So discernment is, we're, we're huge, my family's huge Columbo fans, the old detective from the 70s and 80s. And uh, I own every Columbo episode that ever was made, and we've watched it multiple times. We can quote them backwards and forwards. We've been watching some again this week and um, just catching some of our favorite episodes. Well, here's the thing that sometimes happens in, in Columbo is at the end when the killer has been busted, the killer will sometimes say to Columbo, when did you know? How did you catch me? And sometimes Columbo will point to the craziest, most non-obvious thing. He would say, I knew it when I saw that cold cup of coffee on that desk. Or I knew it when I saw that scratch on a whiskey bottle. Right? Or I knew it when I saw that the victim was dressed in brand new clothes. Like, just the most non-obvious things. And that was the moment. He had them right then as soon as he saw that. This shrewdness in this text has to do with seeing what isn't obvious. Here's the point. It's not spiritual to be naive. That's not a virtue. Innocence is a virtue. Naivety isn't a virtue. Jesus called his disciples to be what? Innocent as doves, but shrewd as serpents, wise as serpents. God's word is meant to shape that kind of mind, to cleanse, renew, sharpen our thinking, the mind of the believer. And so we want to dig deep into the knowledge of his word, deep into the knowledge of his character and his ways, deep into the knowledge of how this world works. Convinced that the best definition of foolishness and the best definition of wisdom is God's definition of foolishness and wisdom. Because God's definitions, unlike yours and mine, aren't opinions. They have the privileged position of being called truth. If God says it, it's true. He defines things accurately. And since God is a revealing, communicative God, he is, as Francis Schaeffer said in his famous book in the 20th century, he is there and he is not silent. He is a God who talks, who tells us in his self-revealing word what he's like. And here's the issue. The fool blows that off. 
The fool says, I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to live as my own autonomous self. And the wise do just the opposite. The wise pull up a chair and say, did you say God is speaking? When does it start? They pull up a chair and they're ready to listen. They're ready to learn. Here's the next truth. Wise people are hungry for knowledge. Hungry for knowledge. I'm not talking about a mind crammed with facts. Verse 4 speaks of knowledge and discretion. Verse 5 speaks of the kind of discernment that, you see those words, obtains guidance. In other words, makes decisions that are flavored by God's definition of success in this world. Think about this. As a church, where are we? How are we? God calls us to become a wisdom-saturated community. He calls us to become a wisdom-saturated community. So let me ask you the question, what is our collective counseling IQ at the Church of Brook Hills? Can we help one another? Not just add two plus two is four doctrinally, but can we help other people to not let their mouths ruin their lives? I mean, discipleship in the everyday course of living. Can we help other people be a trustworthy friend and stay out of destructive relationships and own up to sin and not be mastered by their wealth? Can we help in those critical life areas? Discipleship wants to go there. Proverbs, I'm so grateful we have the book of Proverbs because Proverbs doesn't just, as Kidner says, it doesn't just take you to church. It takes you everywhere else. It takes you to the office. Proverbs wants your discipleship to affect your bank statement, to affect your grades, to affect what you're like as a boss, what you're like as an employee, what you look for in a potential spouse, what you look at on your phone when nobody's in the room. Proverbs wants your discipleship to go into every sphere of your life and make you wise so that you're running with wisdom and you look next to you and there's righteousness, there's justice, there's integrity, and we're all running together under God's wisdom. Proverbs is a table full of sages. Don't you want to listen? Don't you want to hear what they're saying? Don't you want to be a fly on the wall in that conversation? These, these people gifted with keen insight under divine inspiration into the workings of the world? Who doesn't want in on that? We'd be fools to not want in on that. And if you got close to the table, you'd find out they're not talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. They're not, they're not engaging in mystical speculation. They're talking about friends, anger, the marriage bed. They're talking about laziness and backdoor deals and poverty. They're talking about how not to be a son that breaks his mother's heart. Talking about how not to add unnecessary anguish to a life that's already subject to sorrow anyway. Which brings us to the final point. Worship continually. Worship continually. Proverbs is God himself saying, I want your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want the whole you. I want to teach you to live skillfully. I want to teach you to think perceptively. I want to teach you to worship continually. Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and 
discipline. So that word beginning doesn't mean it's like the threshold that you walk over and then you move past it into deeper resource, recesses of the house. It's, it's beginning means foundation. It means source. You never, you never move beyond it. This fear of the Lord is the source of all wisdom. And it's a relational phrase. It's not about living before God and cringing in terror. That's not what fear of the Lord means. It's covenantal. It's the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of Yahweh. It's the fear of the one who's joined himself to his people in covenant. Matter of fact, one of the ways that we know it's not just about trembling in fear and cringing in his presence because he's holy and we're scared to death is in the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai of all places, it becomes clear in Exodus chapter 20. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's saying, we don't want to hear him. Moses, you go talk to him. We're scared to death. Moses responded to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. Does that make sense? Do not fear, that his fear may be before you? So wait, do we not fear or do we fear? Yes. The fear is contrasted with trembling and terror. Don't don't just sit here and tremble. Revere the Lord. Live in relationship with your covenant king. Wisdom is, this is in your notes, it's about my relationship with God. A reverence for him, a bowing before him as a good and generous king. An acknowledgement of the difference between him and us. We do well to remember, Christians, especially in our culture, we do well to remember God is not our, our pal in the sky. He is not our chum. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's the Lord of glory. He's worthy of our worship. He's awesome, too awesome for words. And so the fear of the Lord is displayed. How does it get shown? The fear of the Lord is displayed when we live toward this next reality in your notes. God is God and I am not. That's how you display that you're living in the fear of the Lord. There's there's this evidence that God is God and I'm not living in accordance with that core statement of faith. In other words, what does that look like in our lives? It means God speaks truth, I need truth. God has designed me and the world, I want to align with his purposes. I want to live in the grain of God's design and his purposes in the world. We, We have a culture that is awash in vague spirituality and God talk. We do not have a culture that understands the fear of the Lord. We do not have a culture that bows before him as king. The next point's this, the fear of the Lord has everything to do with listening to him. Everything to do with listening to him. Notice how verse seven clarifies itself right in the verse, by these two contrasting lines. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What's that mean? It means the opposite of the fear of the Lord is to despise wisdom and instruction or wisdom and discipline. The fool doesn't fear God. The fool won't listen. He despises wisdom and discipline. Despise, that's a strong word, right? Contempt despises wisdom. In what ways does that play out? I think in a couple ways. How do we despise wisdom? Number one, we're too smart for it. And number two, we're too good for it. 
We're too smart for it. Ancient paths don't match our progressive values. We've figured stuff out by this time that they didn't understand in the ancient world. So we're too smart for that these days. Or we're too good for it. We don't really need that, right? That's what the apostle Paul encountered when he was preaching the gospel in Corinth. And he preaches Christ crucified for our salvation as God's eternal wisdom unlocked in the fullness of time. That was Paul's message. And what did he say the reception was? He said the Greeks were too smart for it and the Jews were too good for it. The the Greeks just thought this was just absolutely absurd and the Jews thought, we don't need a handout. No thanks. I mean, they could use that. We don't need that. And what does Paul say? Does he accommodate the message to the fact that they wish they had something smarter, something that matches the sophistry of the first century Greco-Roman world? No, he doesn't accommodate it at all. He says, but we preach Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. You ever realize how comprehensive our salvation is in Christ? We've sinned and Jesus is our righteousness. We suffer and Jesus never leaves us. We're fools and Jesus is our wisdom because one greater than Solomon has come. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Jesus is, in that sense, the one who's ultimately walking through the pages of the book of Proverbs saying, who wants in? is Jesus himself, God's embodiment, the logos himself, the word of God, the wisdom of God incarnate. You think about the relationship between the Old Testament, Proverbs, and the New Testament, the relationship between wisdom and the incarnate Jesus. Proverbs 3, God through wisdom created the world. Colossians 1, all things in heaven and earth were created through Christ. In Proverbs, the one who gets wisdom gets life to the full. In John 10, the one who gets Jesus gets life to the full. In Proverbs, wisdom gives a crown of beauty to those who embrace her. In Revelation 2, Jesus gives a crown of life to those who embrace him. In Proverbs 5, the Father says, listen closely to wisdom. In Matthew 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. Throughout Proverbs, wisdom is the path that leads to life. And then Jesus shows up in John 14 and says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There's a new beginning waiting for us the moment we run and bow before Jesus Christ. The fear, in the fullness of time, this is what we know. The fear of the Lord Jesus Christ is the beginning of knowledge the beginning of wisdom. To believe on Jesus Christ is to have your sins forgiven on account of his death on the cross in your place. To believe on Jesus Christ, not only is that, in addition, it's to have a voice behind you telling you, this is the way, walk in it. I know the answer to the riddle of the universe. You won't have to search for what everybody else is desperately searching for. Have you believed on him? Have you trusted in this one Savior, the wisdom that God has sent. That's where wisdom begins. There's no way around it. That's where wisdom must begin. So what now? Three things, very briefly. Three things. Number one, work your Bible. Work your Bible. Know God's voice. Know the difference between his voice, what he says, and what your mind tells you. Know the difference between what he says and what your accuser tells you in your ear. Put 
these words on like headphones. Wear this all day long. Drink it in. Live in this truth. Dive deeper into the knowledge of God. Grow in reference, in reverence. Work the muscle of awe through the exercise of God's word. Number two, work your faith community. Work your faith community. So let's help each other. Isn't that what the church is? Let's help each other. Let's encourage one another in the faith. You keep reading in chapter 1 of Proverbs, and you get to this gang in verse 8 through 19. It's a terrible group of people. They're the opposite of what the church is meant to be. Everybody who gets around them is dragged into destruction. The church is supposed to be the opposite. We should be a community that nurtures every ember of faith and wisdom in our brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters need you wise, so work your faith community. And finally, display the beauty of wisdom. Display the beauty of wisdom. Our our city needs wise Christians. I heard someone say, more people are won to Christ by brightness than by rightness. Wisdom is beautiful. Wisdom is attractive. Wisdom bestows a crown of beauty. So, friends, if you could get one thing, what would you ask for? Lady Wisdom walks through the pages of this book and she says, who wants in? You can come inside the house. You can sit at the table and I'll give you everything I've got. I'll pour wisdom over you. It will be a life-changing experience. Go deep. Learn deep things. She invites you. Learn deep things. So as a church, let's go in. Let's follow Lady Wisdom's call and let's get it. Let's get wisdom. And in all our getting, let's get understanding.